everyone. Welcome back to the fourth episode of season two of the Bet On Yourself podcast. This is an episode I've been working on for a while, and honestly, it's pivoted a little bit since I first drafted it up. The original theme for this edition has been around business plans. A lot of my consulting clients talk to me about how to position themselves to disrupt an industry, how to be the most innovative and creative they can be, and how they want to create their legacy with what they're building. And as I started thinking about that, I realized that the best practices and advice that I give to these consulting clients also applies to individual careers, not only to companies. So to be clear, as we get going, this episode is for entrepreneurs with ideas who want to know what their hard work is going to pay off into and whether their existing business or side hustle or startup is in alignment with that. Second, this is for individuals, people who want to level up to be seen as a leader and to make a really big impact. So the common theme here is about disruptive growth, whether that's for yourself, your career in general, in the long run, and your company. So first, who are we talking about? Um, I talk a lot about entrepreneurs, but how do we really define that? And I heard a really interesting podcast interview recently with Steve Blank, the author of The Lean Startup. Now I'm going to talk across this episode of three really pivotal um, key books for any entrepreneur. So make note of these three. You're definitely going to want to read them. So Steve Blank in this podcast episode was talking about how he recognized that he was an entrepreneur early in his career, even though he started in the military. He said, I think entrepreneurs make their own luck. Even when I was in the military, the number one rule in the military was don't volunteer for anything. I volunteered for everything. And half of that time, yes, was cleaning latrines and peeling potatoes. But the other half of that time actually made my career. I ended up doing some amazing things because no one else wanted to volunteer for them or no one else would even show up. And I would say that is maybe the number one thing that differentiates entrepreneurs with, you know, normal people is normal people expect to be recognized for what they do and entrepreneurs make their own recognition and create their own reality. It's very different than what exists in a large company or what exists for most people. I have never heard a better definition of an entrepreneur, and that actually helped me self-identify as an entrepreneur because I am timid by nature. I am not the kind of person who steps off a cliff without a plan for how I'm going to survive on the way down. But by that definition, I am a textbook entrepreneur. I have been the one to raise my hand or to volunteer or to show up when no one else wanted to. And for me as well, just like for Steve Blank, that has made all the difference. So Ask yourself, how do you know if you are an entrepreneur? I think we can break this down into three questions. First, are you curious? Do you like to learn, read, ask questions about topics you know nothing about? Are you not intimidated to ask and lean into areas that are outside your strong suit around your area of expertise? Second, does your curiosity translate into imagination? Do you find yourself thinking about new solutions for existing problems? at a deeper level than the people around you? And third, do these ideas translate into action? Are you seeking out resources, fellow problem solvers, communities of like-minded people that will help move you towards results? If you said yes to these three things, you are an entrepreneur. That's the difference between someone with just an idea and someone who's an entrepreneur. Are you willing to actually take that action? Are you willing to let go of the familiar and start something new? Do you volunteer and do you show up? So now we've established 
that you're an entrepreneur. I know you are. That's why you tuned into this podcast. So how and when can you be disruptive? Just this morning on LinkedIn, while I was queuing up my mind about this podcast episode, I saw Pablo Rodriguez, who is on season one of Bet on Yourself. I definitely encourage you to go back and listen to his interview because he is fascinating and one of the world's experts in this area because Pablo is a moonshot ambassador at X, which is a moonshot factory of Alphabet. I got to know that team really well during my 12 years working at Google. And Pablo in this um, LinkedIn post this morning, he was talking about the golden ratio for risk-taking and investment, whether that's investing your time, your resources, your budget, et cetera. So he broke this down into the golden ratio is you should invest 70% of your resources into your core business, 20% into adjacent, and 10% into disruptive. Now what's fascinating is he pointed out that actually the results you receive in return are the inverse when you're, when you're persistent, which is an important key. So he says, after that 70% investment into core business, 20% to adjacent and 10% to disruptive, you re receive the inverse. You will receive 10% of your results from your core business, 20% from adjacent, maybe side hustles or you know, incremental improvements you're making. And then 70% of your return results will be around those disruptive business ideas. That's shocking. And I hope that gives you a little dose of courage to take some big risks. And again, I want to emphasize that the key here is persistent. These results are not immediate. This comes from tireless reinvesting into these different areas. So let's take a step back and let's define what we mean by core adjacent and disruptive. So within your individual career, core might be what you've been hired to do right now, your core competencies. Adjacent investments might be in a side hustle or a project or um, a training that you're taking uh, additional education or maybe a group of like-minded people that you're joining. And then disruptive is where we're really turning everything on its head and not only making incremental steps into a new area for impact, but we're really turning everything upside down and taking a completely different approach. So here's where I'm going to lean into core entrepreneur book, foundational book number two, which is The Innovator's Dilemma. This was written by Clay Christensen, who just passed away last year. And I think probably his most famous work for a very good reason, because he breaks this formula down for us in, into ways that are really easy and applicable for any person or company. So to oversimplify his incredible book, we're going to break this down into three principles. And first is where we're going to define what is disruptive. So in traditional models, if you're in a current company, the sustaining part of your business is areas where you're just making incremental improvements for existing customers or users versus the disruptive ideas, which actually don't right now apply or appeal to any of your existing customers. They don't appeal to them because they're cheaper, easier, more convenient. You're looking for appealing to a completely new user who's approaching a problem from a different way. So this is often an inferior product at first for a couple of reasons. So let's illustrate it with the digital camera. When we move from film to digital cameras, we actually have the options of a physical camera, SLR, which was a little bit expensive, but it had superior lenses and capabilities, how you could focus the different settings on the camera were really advanced. And that was great for people who are transitioning from film into digital and really needed that same high quality of work. But what we didn't expect actually was more people adopted 
digital cameras or digital photography when it was inserted into their phone because it was already in their pocket. Now, this was cheaper because they didn't have to invest in a different device. It was easier and more convenient because it was already in their pocket, but it was inferior. Only now are the digital capabilities built into your iPhone or your Android device even close to what an SLR camera could uh, produce. But this photography industry is massively disrupted by this seemingly inferior quality product because it brought in a whole new set of users. This really scaled in a way that SLR has not been able to. So the second key here is we're investing in disruptive tech that isn't rational going back to that, that uh, digital camera transformation example. So one, far lower margins. You're not making a lot of profit at the beginning. Second, you're launching into very small markets. You know, it, with digital cameras, there weren't very many people who were looking to have a camera in their pocket at all times. And third, the most profitable existing customers don't even want it. If you had asked somebody, hey, do you want this inferior quality camera that could just sit in your pocket all the time? Probably people would have said no. So you're really looking for early adopters who are looking for creative solutions to problems they hadn't even thought of yet. And next, existing companies feel pressure to please their current investors and clients. This is why we see companies like Kodak or Xerox or Blockbuster being massively disrupted. There's actually really solid business reasons why they didn't adapt and see this opportunity. First, distributive tech is hard to know how to measure. How do we even measure the opportunity, the risk, how, what's gonna be our adoption rate? There's lots of rush, lots of uncertainty, and that can be intolerable for a big company that has some very serious responsibilities to shareholders and to employees. Then this is true for individuals as well. In your life, you might have some core key stakeholders in your life who aren't looking for disruption. This might be your boss at your current, uh, in your current role or your life partner who um, relies on your income as, as part of what you're contributing to the family or it might be the culture you've been brought up into, your extended family or what's expected of you given the definition your culture has put onto you. So it can be tough to get outside of your usual lane. And they might not be supportive of the risk, even especially when the return is unknown or it's a really uncertain result. Maybe you want to take a big risk on a startup idea or a side hustle idea, but it might be a lot of hours and some upstart um, investment costs. And we have no idea if anything's going to come of it. That can be a hard sell. So the third principle that Clayton Christensen points out in the Innovators Dilemma is um, how can existing businesses prepare itself for the future? How can we have this innovative model within an existing structure? And this also applies for those of us who are trying to disrupt our own career trajectory or in, lean into a side hustle or kind of redefine ourselves within our own work. So yes, in a way we can do this within established organizations or established workflows. Distributive tech needs uh, separate entities who are allowed to explore within their own silo. So for example, in, if you're doing this for yourself and your current competency. Maybe we can apply Pablo's golden ratio where you are contributing at that core 70% of your job, what you were hired to do. You're going to push the envelope a little bit with permissions to spend 20% on cross collaborative projects or something that's slightly outside your job description, but still very much within the lane of what your boss might expect and 10% of doing something disruptive asking for a training that they might not have thought of you for, volunteering to mentor somebody when you still feel fairly junior, et cetera. You get the idea. So the second thing is how we can do this within established companies or cultures 
is we need to be allowed to look at small margins and develop new incremental markets. Now, this goes a little bit against the definition of uh, disruptive because disruptive is by definition not incremental. It's something that's um, very disruptive, but we can do it in incremental steps where we're testing it along the way when we don't have the full freedom to just come at it from a different angle and jump in with both feet into our new ideas. And third is the team needs to be small enough to enjoy the small opportunities and the small wins that come in this area. So this is, again, going back to yourself of realizing this is just going to be 10% of your time or your investment where you can really celebrate these teeny tiny little wins that maybe only you notice at first. And within a larger corporation, if you've given permission to this siloed team that has been charged with being maybe um, a resident entrepreneur or head of innovation, allowing them within their purview, within this small bucket to celebrate what for them is a big win, whereas in the grand scheme of the larger company is just a drop in the bucket. So again, remember Pablo's golden rule, golden ratio, 70-20-10 to be ready for the 10, 20, and 70% returns. And a big key of this, going back to it's really important to remember is just be ready to fail early and often and to be really persistent if you hope for those long-term rewards. So the third book I want to reference that I think is very important is The Lean Startup by Rick Rice. So here he starts with the definition of what a startup is not. Startups are not smaller versions of large companies. Okay, we're not just taking the best practices of a big company and applying it in mini version. It actually doesn't work. The same rules do not apply. So if you've been trying to look at, um, maybe you've been trying to take the best practices you use in your full-time day job and apply it to your side hustle, you might see some friction there where it's not actually taking hold in the same way. And vice versa, I see a lot with my consulting clients where they've gone from being a startup, they're getting a lot of traction, they're scaling up really fast and suddenly everything is breaking and they come to me worried they're making mistakes. No, that's actually what success looks like. Um, that's the critical differences between these big companies and a startup. Uh, it actually really needs a different playbook. So we need to define what they are. First, startups are agile. They ultimately succeed and go very quickly from failure to failure, all the while adapting, iterating on, and improving their initial ideas as they continually learn from customers. Second, startups are likely to feel like you're playing a completely different sport every day. I love this analogy because it is not, I think we expect our early ideas, whether that's for our career development or for a startup, where we think it's gonna go from like T-ball into the JV team, to the varsity team, to the junior league, and then to the major league baseball. That is actually not how it goes. It's kind of like playing baseball, then switching to football, then switching to swimming, then switching to volleyball. These different stages have very different rules, different strengths, different training regimens that work. And so you're going to have to remain agile and actually lean into consistently reinventing yourself and doubling down on that. Don't let that be discouraging. That actually is part of what is the most fun of being an entrepreneur, I think. Not every day. Okay, not every day. But overall, this is what really fuels us and keeps us going. So startups have to lean head on into a series of unknowns 
we don't know at the start who the ideal customers are or what the channel works like or who the competitors are, what the supply chain, chain looks like or how to estimate the costs. That's a lot of unknowns and that's what makes it scary. But how do we get started even when we have a lot of these unknowns? The lean startup methodology recommends three pieces of this puzzle to, that make it lean. The first is Alexander Osterwalder's business model canvas. Now Google that business model canvas, and he's got a great website with some downloads that will walk you through this process. But this is how you can really articulate for yourself your core hypothesis uh, and what needs to be tested at the very earliest stages. So if you go through his canvas model, he has nine boxes that you're going to look at customer segments, value propositions, channels, customer relationships, revenue streams, key resources, key activities, key partnerships, and cost structure. That was a lot. I highly recommend Googling and he'll walk you through all those steps, but it really helps you kind of flesh out your idea and make sure that you have thought through all these different parts of a, a really meaty idea. Second is that the customer development process, which is what you actually really, really need to focus on, it's probably the most essential of these three steps, requires you to just get out of the building. You can't sit there with your notebook and pen and write out your perfect business plan and have the, you know, 100 manageable steps between here and your moonshot. You have to first get out and test your theory. Are you building something that your customers really want? Are you anticipating what their actual biggest pain points are? Are we solving those core problems and how can we iterate and change along the way? to incorporate the feedback of your users. You are going to need to do this not only at the very beginning, but consistently as you launch things and get closer and closer to launching your ideal product. This is how you test your hypothesis. And third is develop products at speed. This is what we call agile engineering. And that is how you create a minimum viable product. And this is um, making sure that you're building the products in an incrementally and iteratively fashion. So you're testing as you go and listening to the feedback you're getting from your users. So we make sure that we're not wasting time or resources building something that doesn't solve their core problem. So we start out by breaking all the rules and without permission. And this is actually one of the biggest or maybe only advantages you might feel right away when you're starting a, a side hustle or a startup or really reinvesting in yourself. You have the advantage of no one's watching. No one's judging or criticizing or copying you yet. Take full advantage of this stage. This is one of the few silver linings. You, can, you have the full freedom to experiment and break things because no one's paying attention. Later, you don't have that luxury. You have investors, you have responsibilities, you have clients, you have uh, boards of directors. But right now, it's you and you have the full freedom to iterate and pivot as often as you need to. So in your career... There are these same advantages, and this is really the advantage of being a novice. If you're at the early stage of your career, no one expects you to perform perfectly. No one blinks when you ask a seemingly dumb question. They all are expecting you to come with crazy ideas or different ways of approaching something because you are unencumbered with the way that things have always been done. So lean into that and do that again as you reinvent yourself across the career as you get your first promotion or you're seeking out your first mentor. Really use this advantage of being the novice or the underdog. 
as much as possible. And this will attract people around you who voluntarily sign up to be part of your journey, whether they're jumping onto your startup idea, they're coming on board as a mentor or as an advocate for you. This is your self-selected team. They're there because they want to be. They want to show up and they believe in what you're building. Rather than later in established teams or companies, these are people who are there because they want recognition and promotion. There's something in it for them rather than just what we're producing together. So again, that's another advantage of this early stage. It's like you've got these real self-starters around you. So what do we include in our business model? I want to simplify this. Sometimes this feels really scary. Like, I don't know where to get started. You've got this blank page, this piece of paper. Maybe you even have those nine sections um, ready to sketch out. For me, okay, if you only focus on one thing, it's got to be the people. The people, I see this over and over again with my consulting clients. You can have the best idea, the most disruptive technology, all the like world-changing patents in your back pocket. And if you don't have the right people in the right seats, it's a losing battle. And on the flip side, I've seen some pretty mediocre ideas have extreme traction because they have the right people on board making it happen. So with the people, look for three things. First, passion alignment. Go back and listen to the early episodes about really defining your mission, vision, and values and making sure that people you surround yourself with, whether you're the hiring manager or you're doing this in your personal life and gathering your tribe, really look for that alignment. Second is their expertise. Do you have the people around you that are going to anticipate what you need and bring to the table parts of that experience that you lack? Are they bringing some kind of wisdom that's essential to your key success? And third and possibly most important is grit. Are these the people who are so aligned with you that they're going to show up day after day and really deliver for you, that they are so insatiably curious and passionate and excited about what you're delivering that they will never tire of it? Well, never maybe is a stretch. I definitely, I still tire, even though I'm very passionate about what I'm doing, but you keep coming back. So the second is opportunity. So look at, um, evaluate the profile of the business itself or yourself. If you, this is about doubling down on your career and rebetting in yourself and ask yourself three questions, the what, the how, and the why. We've talked about that in past episodes. Think about what you want to deliver into the world, how you're going to do that, and for whom are you delivering it? And then anticipate your growth pace. Is this going to move really fast or is this a long haul investment and who or what might stand in your way of success? This sometimes has really saved me when I have been discouraged. And then I go back to my original sketches of, of when I've done my risk assessments of like, is this something I'm going to invest in? And when I've identified early some bumps along the way, if I am feeling that bump right now and I go back and know that I anticipated it, it gives me kind of this vote of confidence of like, okay, maybe I know what I'm doing. I, I knew this was something that would be part of this process. Third is context. So what is the current status quo in your career, in your team, in the company, the startup idea, maybe the industry you're trying to disrupt? And second, what are the factors that inevitably change but cannot be controlled by you as the entrepreneur? It's also be really important to be aware of those for full context. And fourth and final element of this is risk and reward. Do an assessment of everything that can go wrong and right, see where your tolerance lies, and then second, how you and your team can respond to that. So really have kind of a battle plan and try and anticipate all these pivot points. So getting into the last section here is where are you gonna place this bet? Now this is a, an additional essential book for entrepreneurs called Blue Ocean Strategy by Chan Kim and Renee Mauberg. So what, is, what are blue and red oceans? What am I talking about? 
Hopefully you've heard of this concept before, but if not, a short recap is that red oceans represent all the industries in existence today. These are the known market spaces. In red oceans, industry boundaries are defined and accepted. The competitive rules of the game are well understood. And here, companies are trying to just outperform their rivals in order to grab a greater share of the existing demand. And it's actually a pretty brutal place to be. As the space gets more and more crowded, prospects for profits and growth are going to be reduced because there's this a finite pie and you're just trying to fight for the bit of it you can get. And so this is called a red ocean because this is the analogy of being in the ocean with a lot of sharks and the water is bloody. There's a lot of competition over those um, that meal that they're going after. On the other hand, blue ocean denotes all the industries that are not in existence today. These are the unknown market spaces, the un something unattained by competition. In blue oceans, demand is created rather than fought over. There's ample opportunity for growth that is both profitable and rapid. So how do you know if you're creating a blue ocean company or strategy for your own growth? First, a blue ocean is created from within a red ocean. So yes, an existing need, an existing demand out there. So, but you carve out this blue ocean within a red ocean when you as a company or as a career disruptor, you alter the boundaries of an existing industry. Second, demand is created rather than fought over. So there's ample opportunity for growth that's both profitable and rapid for you. Third, Contrasting to red oceans is it's about doing business where there is no competitor. It's about creating new land, not dividing up existing land. So here we're looking for a sharp contrast to companies playing by traditional rules where never use the competition as a benchmark. Eric Schmidt says this all the time. You never do anything truly innovative if you're looking at your competition. Instead, those with a blue ocean strategy mindset, they make it irrelevant by play, creating a leap in value for both uh, buyers and the company itself. So you do this by driving down costs while simultaneously driving up value for your clients, customers, those you're serving. So you can achieve this leap in value for both yourself as the producer and for your customers and create a win-win. So the, here the reward outweighs the risks because by adopting a blue ocean creator's business model, it's easier to imagine what you're going to do how you are going to move forward and what the um how you're going to carve out this blue ocean among a red ocean because blue ocean creators immediately attract customers in large volumes they're able to generate at scale they have economies that scale very rapidly they're putting would-be imitators at an immediate disadvantage because um they have a continuing cost disadvantage so this is where you have a company or a mentality maybe people in your career who are so entrenched in the way things have always been done that they actually think the, the adjustment cost of following you into this blue ocean is too high. It would be too disruptive, too expensive, too risky, too scary. And because of that, you're gonna have all that space to yourself because other people find it too expensive and too intimidating to follow you. So my friends, this is how we disrupt ourselves our industries, and how we make educated big bets on yourself. So let's take a breath and pause and see what has this inspired you to try? What is going to be your 10% disruptive allowance for this week? I want to hear it. I hope you will tag me. Please um, like, share, and rate this podcast. 
please tag me on social media. I want to hear what risks you take, what rewards you get, and um, your thoughts on these three books, The Lean Startup, The Innovator's Dilemma, and Blue, Blue Ocean Strategy. I'd love to hear if this has been informative to you in taking some big risks on yourself. And I want to be part of that long-term journey and let our community also support you. So go out there and take some big bis, big risks and um, make a disruptive business plan for your career and for your side hustle or startup today.